Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Our text for our sermon is Luke chapter 22, verses 66 through 71. As soon as it was day, the council of the elders of the people met together, both the chief priests and the experts in the law. They brought him into their Sanhedrin and said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer me or release me. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. They all said, Are you then the Son of God? He said to them, I am what you are saying. Then they said, Why do we need any more testimony? For we ourselves have heard it from his own mouth. This is the gospel history of our Lord. This year during the Lent season, we are looking at the theme, Rays of Divine Glory as Seen in Christ's Passion. And that's because as Moses found out when he asked to see all of God's glory, no sinner can look into all of God's glory and live. And so Jesus hid his divine, his godly glory. And, but even in the Passion, we see glimpses of it. And last week we saw it when he said those words, I am he, and the guards fell back and were knocked to the ground. But today we see it in a confession given in a court case. Now how did that court case come about? It came about because he truly and undeniably showed a glimpse of his divine glory. Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, had died. And he had been dead long enough that when Jesus told them to roll his tombstone away, his sister said, oh, surely not, Lord. It's been long enough. It's going to stink. He's been decomposing. And when Jesus raised him, that's when the chief priests, the elders, those who made up the Sanhedrin said, enough of this. We got to get rid of this guy. And as we find out in John chapter 12, not only did they plot to murder Jesus, they had to silence this, so they plotted to murder Lazarus. They had to do it legally. The Romans wouldn't let them get away with it otherwise. Judas, by betraying, gave them the opportunity to get him uh, there and arrested. But then they take Jesus through quite a kangaroo court system. First, they lead him to the deposed high priest. The Romans had deposed him to Annas. And Annas's job was to look for charges against him. Well, Annas couldn't find any. Then he's beaten by the guards. Some of them would have been guys who were driven down to the ground when he said, I am he. And we're told in verse 66 of today's text, as soon as it was day. This is about 5 a.m. in the morning. The Sanhedrin didn't usually meet at 5 a.m. in the morning. See, on Sunday, the crowds had cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna. And they knew those crowds would turn against them, so they had to get him into Pilate's hands, and they had to have charges so the crowd wouldn't turn against them. Now, they would successfully get the crowd to turn against Jesus and shout, crucify. So they meet at 5 a.m. in the morning secretly so that the people wouldn't know about it. But do you catch what else has gone on? They had Jesus up all night interrogating him. So he has not had an ounce bit of sleep as he appears before the Sanhedrin, which was made up of 71 men. They had people that would tell lies, 
But amazingly, it was almost supernaturally, their lies weren't even that good. They were, you could clearly see that no two of them even lined up in their lying. This was a kangaroo court system. So it'd be the equivalent of if you were arrested and they took you to the retired police chief who then tried to find charges for you, on the way, some of the police officers manhandled you and beat you, and then they, they, they have all these witnesses against you who are paid to lie. They, they've kept you up all night without sleep. So this is pretty much the tantamount to torture. And then finally, they find some charges by using your own evidence against you. In America, even a terrible attorney would tell you, yeah, this doesn't work. This is injustice. We have rights to protect you. But the amazing thing is, Jesus knew this was going to be a kangaroo court system. And he hid his godly glory and walked into it boldly. We're told in Mark chapter 10, verses 33 through 34, Look, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the experts in the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. Jesus knew this kangaroo court was going to run this way and he voluntarily went to it so that he could make the confession he did and the prophecy he did in this and he made those for you. So we arrive at our theme for today as we look at rays of divine glory as seen in Christ's passion, seen by Christ's declaration and by his prophecy. Let's get into the declaration first. In verse 67, in frustration, they say, If you are the Christ, tell us. And Jesus says, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer me or release me. Jesus is not talking out of both sides of his mouth. And he's not just merely talking and pointing out the injustice of this court. See, Jesus is exposing their sin, and he's not exposing their sin in a pharisaical way to say, look, I'm better than you. You guys are running a kangaroo court. He's pointing out their unbelief. They knew that you had to be sent by God to raise somebody from the dead. So bare minimum, he was at least sent by God. And if he was at least sent by God, they had no business plotting his murder. The ultimate problem here was exactly as Jesus did say, if I tell you, you will not believe. He pointed out their unbelief. No matter what, in their hatred, they would follow through with this injustice. He could point out the injustice. He could point out that this didn't even work in a Roman court of law to them. He could then demand that they set him free. But they weren't going to. They had murder in their hearts and they were trying to do it legally. They had murder in their hearts because they wanted to protect their positions in the Sanhedrin, which ironically was supposed to be pointing the people to Christ in the first place. So Jesus doesn't give an evasive answer here. He was wanting to save their soul. And if any one of them ever repented, he went to that cross so that their sin of unbelief would be washed away. See, unbelief rejects the salvation Christ went to the cross to win for all the world. The only thing that condemns a person to hell is unbelief, rejecting Jesus as their savior. And so Jesus gives the prophecy that you and I are going to get into here in just a minute. But by that prophecy, he's actually also giving a declaration that he is true God. Again, we'll get into that in a minute. And it's after that then that in verse 70, they all said, 
Are you the Son of God? They already knew that the Messiah would be the Son of God. Scripture had been clear in the Old Testament that the Messiah, that means anointed one, the Greek word of that for that is Christ, from the Greek word Christos. They knew that the Messiah would be a descendant of David, but also true God. In fact, Jesus had pointed this out to the Pharisees. In Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 through 46, Jesus uses Psalm 110. He, we're told, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, then how can David in the spirit, that means by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, call him Lord saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Just as there are Christians today who may honestly believe that the scripture says something that it never says and never teaches, or may be completely ignorant of the teachings of scriptures, the Sanhedrin, before Christ said those words, may have missed that the Messiah would be true God and true man. But by the time Jesus said those, it had to have got back to them. They definitely understand. And the miracles Jesus did, nothing proves you are God more than having victory over somebody's death who had been in the grave so long that they would decompose and stink from the decomposition and yet he brings them to life and they stay alive. Jesus had openly confessed on numerous occasions that he was true man and true God. And I emphasize that. I want you to know that because there have been many cults throughout history and even exist today that come along and try to lessen or deny the deity of Christ. One of the largest religions in the entire world will tell you that Jesus is a prophet, but they'll tell you that Jesus never admitted to being God. And that is outright ignorance to the scriptures because Jesus constantly confessed. As we saw in last week's sermon, I am. In fact, way prior to that, when asked about Abraham, he said, before Abraham was born, I am. Jesus constantly declared that he is true God and true man. And so they all said, asking that question, are you then the son of God? We're told he said to them, I am what you are saying. Now, this may seem to us like Jesus isn't saying, yup. But this is actually a clearer confession. For example, sometimes I get an email from a member that I'm going to meet with. And they'll say, are we still meeting tonight at 6.30 p.m., for example? And I won't just say, yes. I will say, yes, we are meeting at 6.30 p.m. So that they can definitely know that that is definitely my plans. And when Jesus says, I am what you are saying, he is saying, yes, exactly as you said, so that you are not confused. I am definitely the son of God, which means Jesus is claiming to be God. I am God in the flesh. I am therefore the Messiah, Jesus is saying. Now, the amazing thing is, from here they go, why do we need any more evidence? We don't need to pay for false witnesses. We have his own confession and we're going to use it against him. We're going to claim he's guilty of blasphemy. Well, it's not blasphemy if you are true God who became true man to save the world. 
Jesus, being true God, knew that by boldly and directly confessing this, the outcome would be that he would end up on that cross. And yet he didn't hesitate to boldly, unblurredly, unabashedly, clearly confess that he is the Son of God. And he did that for you. So that you would know that he is your Savior. That he did all the work. Because God can't die. But a man can. God can't be your substitute. Your substitute has to be a man. So he became man. True God who became true man. So that he could be your substitute. So that he could die in your place. But as true God, the death of the God man would be so powerful. That it wouldn't just cover for all of your sins. It wouldn't just cover for all of my sins. It would cover for the sins of the world. So that only unbelief condemns us. Rejecting it. That's what unbelief is. So, we see rays of divine glory in Christ's passion, here not by a miracle, but by Christ's open declaration, so that you would know that he is your Savior. Now, I mentioned that his prophecy also was a declaration that he is the Son of God, and they caught on to that. So that takes us to the second part of our sermon, and that's the prophecy Christ gave. Let's start at verse 67. If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer me or release me. And here comes the prophecy, verse 69. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Now, think about how he had quoted Psalm 110 earlier when he, says, when he said, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus here is prophesying that they will see him at the right hand of God's throne. You and I can miss what's going on here. And let me give a little bit of explanation. As I began this sermon talking about Jesus hiding his glory, when he's hiding his divine glory, we call that his state of humiliation. After he's defeated the grave and he rises from it, we call that his state of exaltation. And when he returns on the last day, the whole world will see nothing but his glory and they will know this is truly the Savior and true God. So what does it mean to be at the right hand of God? He's, he's letting all of his godly glory be seen, but... No offense against you lefties or you ambidextrous people, but most people are right-handed. And so their right hand is stronger. They can arm curl more with their right hand. Now it would be the opposite for a left-handed person. And also at this time in the ages of kings, the Hebrew often talked about the king's right-hand person. We often talk about somebody today as being the right-hand man. But at that time, that was the general, the guy who was in charge of all the army. The only person who had more power than the general was the king. Jesus, by being at the right hand of God's throne, is saying, you will see all of the power I have as God. Now, he's given a prophecy. And in this particular case, he's actually literally predicting what's going to happen in the future. There are people who claim Jesus is only a prophet, not true God. But here we have to ask, how would the Jewish people who did not have the New Testament at this time, it was unfolding before their eyes, how would they be able to know whether or not a prophet was from, sent by God or a false prophet? And there are two tests the Old Testament gives. I got to kind of slightly mention the one by getting into the second one first. 
When Moses gives his farewell address to the generation that's about to enter into and conquer the promised land by the power of God, he says in Deuteronomy 13 verses 1 through 3, if a prophet or an interpreter of dreams arises among you and he predicts a sign or wonder for you and the sign or wonder that he promised you comes true. So he's predicting something and it actually happens. And he says, let's go after other gods that you do not know and let's serve them. Do not listen to the words of that prophet or that interpreter of dreams because the Lord your God is testing you to see whether you really love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. By the power of the devil, people can do miraculous things. God allows that to test us. And here, what was the reason given? He's testing to see if you will remain faithful to God. If somebody tells you to go after other gods, they are disobeying the word of God. So if somebody is a prophet and they claim to be from God, even if they are able to do counterfeit miracles and baffle you, if they tell you to do something that contradicts the word of God, which would especially be chasing after other gods, don't listen to them. Now think about a lot of cults and stuff that have come, up, come upon that have come out in history. There are many people who claim to be prophets as if they have exclusive access to God. And for some reason, he's picked them out. Oftentimes, they're even scoundrels with criminal records and stuff. But they have exclusive access. Oh, but they'll change God. One of the biggest cults that exists in America today, they even use those terms, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But when you read their writing, they are actually changing God. It's not... One God in three persons, a triune God, it's three distinct gods. One of them they've named Father, one they've named Son, etc. Or think about how in history people have come along and claimed to be prophets from God, but they turn around and, and they, they, they lessen the deity or they outright deny that Jesus is true God. Scripture is very clear. Jesus did these miracles and confessed he's true God. If you're going to believe in Jesus, you either believe the package deal or don't believe anything at all. And we're going to see here the other test that was given to see if a prophet is true. And we already touched on that slightly. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 21 through 22. What if you ask yourselves, how can we know that the Lord has not spoken that word? If a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord and the thing does not come about and does not come true, the Lord has not spoken that word. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. Do not be afraid of him. If somebody gives you a prophecy they claim is from God and it doesn't happen, they're lying. Period. End of discussion. If what they do even comes true, but they tell you to step away from the word of God, especially by changing who God is or getting you to chase after other gods, then you li don't listen to them at all. So, should we listen to Jesus? Did his prophecy that I mentioned here, that but from now on the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God, did that come true? Let's fast forward 30 years, more than 30 years, 40 years later, as the Apostle Paul writes to his first epistle to the Corinthians in chapter 15, verses 3 through 7. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas. That's the Aramaic name for the guy you and I call Peter. Then to the twelve. 
After that, he appeared to over 500 brothers. Now, when Paul here says brothers, he's specifically talking about the men. We know he appeared to other women too. So there could be well over 700 witnesses. We'll continue at the same time. Most of whom are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, he appeared also to me, the stillborn child, so to speak. Paul here doesn't tell people, hey, just believe in me because I'm very charismatic. Uh Uh-uh. Go investigate it. Some of them have received eternal glory now, but you can go investigate those 500 witnesses. Now, in a court of law, there is enough to convict that you have defeated the grave, that you have rose and they saw your godly glory, for only God has the power to defeat the grave. Yes, it's 2,000 years later, but men like Luke the evangelist actually interviewed some of those 500 witnesses. God left the proof. He left amazing proof. This was not an exclusive access where somebody says, for some reason God's exclusively talking to me as his prophet. Jesus made it abundantly clear. He left a lot. I mean, hundreds of witnesses. He defeated the grave. And then, as recorded at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, as recorded at the beginning of the book of Acts, he ascended. And there were witnesses that saw him go until a cloud hid him. But to be at the right hand of God means something very comforting to you now. He is true God who became true man as the God man. He quit hiding all of his godly glory and ascended to heaven to rule for you. To bring you to your salvation by ruling over all time and history and all of creation. Then to keep you in your salvation until the day that he returns when he will give you the new heavens and the new earth and a glorified body. Jesus is a prophet. He's the prophet. His prophecies always have come true. So you can trust him. Your faith is not in the wrong place. Jesus is your Savior. He is true God who became true man. He openly declared it. He never denied it. He prophesied that he would defeat the grave and ascend back to God the Father Almighty as we confess in in, in the Apostles Nicene and Athanasian Creed. So you can confess it. You can be confident that God wanted to save you. Once again tonight, we've seen rays of divine glory as seen in Christ's passion. We've seen by it by Christ's declaration and by his prophecy. Amen. Now to him who's able, according to the power that is at work within us, to do indefinitely more than we can ask or imagine, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.